The Gospel reading, John 20, 19 to 31. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hand. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and through believing you may have life in his name. Well, for the last two years or so, our congregation has been engaged in a long-range planning process, which started with some changes in our plan of organization, one of which was the shift from having a board of elders to having a church board. And this was more than just a semantic change. It marked a change, too, in job description, where the board of elders had, in addition to their administrative role, some pastoral responsibilities. The church board was to be more focused on those administrative responsibilities. Many of the pastoral responsibilities were shifted over to the newly formed pastoral care team. And so while the church board does continue to have spiritual oversight of the congregation, it's primarily an administrative body. Now, what does that mean? Well, that's the question that the church board asked. What does this mean? And so we began to do some work on trying to answer that question. And from that work, facilitated by Sue Waterfield, the board um, came up with a job description for itself. And one aspect of that job description was long-range planning or visioning. Now, the board knows that such visioning is not done in a vacuum. Ours is not a top-down congregation with the pastors of the board making plans and then passing them on to all of you to carry out. 
We rely on the community, the congregation, to provide counsel and wisdom and ideas and vision. So this is not the board's congregation. This is yours. This is ours. This is God's. And so we move from conversation with the board, within the board, to conversation in the broader congregation. And our goals in that process have been to learn from you what kind of congregation we have been in the past, what you valued, what you found problematic, what you found painful. And we wanted to hear, too, what kind of congregation you think we are. And from that created a statement of self-understanding, which we tested with you in a members meeting and then was tested again with commission leaders and given to them to help guide them as they set their goals for this year. Now, today we're going to be taking the next step as we near the end of our process. Today, we want to think about what kind of congregation we want to become. We want to listen together to one another and through the community, listen for the voice of God's spirit as we envision who we'd like to be and where we'd like to go and what we'd like to be doing when we get there. The church board will then sort through our collective wisdom, the fruit of this morning's exercises, and discern some overarching long-range goals for our congregation's next few years. And then those goals will be brought back to you to see if the church board got it right. Um, And then those goals will be given to commission leaders who will be asked to consider how their commission's work will help our congregation attain those goals. This is a very general, obviously, overview um, and um, not at all complete, and we don't have time for a complete overview. Um, there have been lots of meetings, lots of thinking, lots of praying, lots of preparing to get us to this point, and most of it has been lots of fun. As the board and commission leaders have talked about this over the last months, it's become increasingly apparent that this work has created a greater sense of clarity about congregational identity and purpose, and we believe that that clarity will only increase as we continue to do this work together. And so our work today is crucial to understanding who we are and increasing that clarity. But this is a sermon, so let's talk about the two New Testament texts. Um, Our two New Testament texts for today may seem to have little or nothing in common with long-range planning. Uh, So let's just put that right out on the table and admit that John and Peter did not have long-range planning in mind when they wrote these two texts. But I think they did care about the health and well-being of their respective communities. If we read the the end part of of the account from John, we see that he uses the story of the resurrection appearance to Thomas as a means of reassuring his community that they too are part of God's coming reign. He speaks directly to them. He steps out of the role of narrator of a story and into the role of preacher when he reminds them that they too are blessed even though they never met Jesus in the flesh. And he goes on to tell them that what he wrote, he wrote for them, so that they may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing they may have life in his name. In fact, John suggests that he intentionally selected which stories of Jesus to include in his book for just that purpose. While much more could have been written, John included those things which he believed would lead his community to faith and to salvation. And Peter, too, loves and wants the best for the community to whom he writes, those exiles of the dispersion. God gave them a second birth, Peter says, and that birth was a merciful gift. And with that birth came living hope based in the truth of the resurrection. Because Christ was raised from the dead, 
They've been born again and so have hope for the future that they did not have before. Because of Easter, they have an inheritance in heaven that is permanent and protected by the power of God. Because of Easter, nothing that comes, even persecution and suffering, nothing that comes can truly harm them. And just as John assures his community that seeing is not necessary for believing, so Peter assures the dispersed believers that their love for Jesus is not dependent upon having seen him. Even though they've not seen Jesus, they rejoice because their salvation is the outcome of their faith in Jesus. Both of these texts, I think, are forward-looking. They don't build a tabernacle at the empty tomb. They don't make a permanent home in the upper room. They don't content themselves with what has already happened. They understand, they, glorious and wonderful as that was, they rejoiced in Easter. They proclaimed the resurrection. And they understood themselves to be a community precisely because of that central act of God, the central act of Easter. But already John and Peter are looking to the next generation. They're looking ahead and offering assurance that what began at Easter is not yet over, that God's work is continuing, and that the people to whom they write are part of it. And that work will not be over until all are saved and God reigns on earth as in heaven. Easter is the beginning. And the end is still to come. And both John and Peter, early Christians that they are, write in order to assist their communities in living into what God is intending. And over the centuries since their writing, Christians have heard those same words of assurances spoken to them, to us. And so it will be until the day of Christ's salvation is finally and fully come. Well, I'd like to suggest that while our New Testament readings don't specifically tell us to make long-range planning a part of our community life together, I'd like to suggest that they do provide us with a rationale and a framework for that work. And the rationale is, I would like to think, readily apparent in what has already been said, that both John and Peter wrote in order that their respective audiences would come to new life in Christ, would appreciate the wonder of that gift, would abide in the hope which comes from the fact of Easter and live as though the end of the story were already realized among them. In fact, we could broaden the argument and say that the Bible itself, written over centuries into a variety of circumstances and audiences, was created in order to enable the people of God to know who they are, to know who God is, to know what God is doing, and to know what their part in that doing might be. In other words, as people of faith, we, like Peter and John, have a responsibility to work to maintain the health and well-being of our community. We have a responsibility to live faithfully together, to lift one another up, to preach the gospel, to proclaim the good news of Easter, to live together in ways which reveal the living hope that is ours in Christ, and to do all these things in ways which draw others to that same Christ and that same hope. This is the work of the church, as it has always been. And part of that work, I believe, is to do what we can to ensure the continued viability, the continued health and well-being, the continued faithfulness of this community into the future. Ours is not a short-term work. It's not a short-term calling, one which looks for quick results. we We rejoice when we get such results, but we also understand that that's not what we're about. The church is not just for us. The church is not just for us. It's for our children. It's for their children. It's for the world around us. 
for future generations beyond them. So we don't simply attend to and care about how it is for us right now, whether that's good or bad or indifferent. We also care for what it will be because God is still at work in the world. So the work of the church, our work, our liturgy is ongoing and won't end until the day of Christ Jesus. The rationale then for this work is, I think, quite clear. We spend time planning for our future together in order to continue the work of being God's people in the world. That work is still going, and it will continue. And so we plan, we prepare, we do what we can to ensure the health and well-being of our community into the future. Now to the framework. As John and Peter both make clear, Easter is the beginning of this work of God of which we are a part. Easter marks the birth of the church, and Christians believe also marks the beginning of God's final move towards salvation. History itself, then, is bracketed by these two truths, the first being Easter, and the second being the coming of the reign of God in fullness and power and glory, the very salvation of the world. Now, both of these, it's important to note, both of these are acts of God. Easter is not something that we made happen. The gospel tells us that God raised Jesus from the dead, that God's angel rolled the stone away, that God told Mary to go and tell the disciples that God lifted Jesus up to heaven. All of these are acts of God. And in the same way, the last move, too, belongs to God. Christ himself will come with healing in his wings. and God will once again reign on earth as in heaven. And the creation and everything in it will be restored by the power of God. And so both the first and the last moves in the drama of salvation belong to God. The work of the church then, I think, is to orient itself with God's help. So that it's moving in the same direction that God is toward the day of salvation which I think provides a necessary framework for the work that we want to do today. We Christians can become pretty fretful um, pretty quickly about getting everything right. And I think that's especially true of Mennonites. Now, in my day, um, which is increasingly long ago, in my day, we talked about finding God's perfect will. Maybe some of you remember that language. That perfect will we talked about, um, as if it were a will-o'-the-wisp. It's elusive and hidden. And if we missed it, if we picked the wrong door or pulled the wrong matchstick, the best we could hope for was second best. And the worst was to miss out on God's will altogether. And I remember fretting about that and worrying about that and being so anxious about that and seeing friends bound up by that worry and fear. They just got to get it right. They have to make the right choice. It would be easy, I think, for us to experience that same kind of anxiety, that same degree of perfectionism in our work today, to assume that it's up to us to get it right, to make the right choice, to set the right goal, to pick the right door, or all will be for naught. This temptation to take on more than is rightfully ours is, I believe, a weakness in Mennonite theology and practice We're good with our hands, and so we assume that the work is ours to complete and to do right. It seems to me, though, 
It seems to me that if we bracket our work in the same way that salvation history is bracketed, if we understand that whatever we do was begun by God and will be finished by God, it seems to me that we can relax a little. I mean, if we believe that in the end, God will make the the promise of salvation a reality, perhaps we can loosen our grip, loosen our collars, understand the task before us as both profound and joyful. If we believe that God's desire is for our congregation to continue to be alive and well and playing whatever role God has for us long into the future, perhaps we can enter the work of planning with a spirit of playful intentionality. This doesn't mean we don't do good work. It doesn't mean that this is frivolous or meaningless work, since God is going to sort it out in the end after all. In fact, I think it's necessary and important work, work that calls us to think deeply about who we are and who God is, and to discern together what God is up to and what our role in that may be. In short, we're engaging in, well, a kind of practical theology. Now, one of the benefits of being close to this work over the last years is that I've developed a deeper sense of the meaning of congregational life and the value of intentionality and purpose, the necessity of attending to problems and seeking out opportunities. This work has given me a deeper appreciation for the wonder of Christian community, the wonder of being part of a people whose common connection is Christ and who share a desire to be faithful to Jesus, not only when we're together, but always and everywhere. I've come to understand all of this, all of this, as a gift from God. And I can even say that one of the reasons that I want to continue my work here is because I've come to a deeper love for both this community and its ministries in the process of long-range planning. This isn't frivolous or make-work or an infiltration from the corporate world. This is the work of growing more serious about who we are and what we're called to become, a work rooted in Easter and headed toward the day of salvation. And it's God's work, work begun by God, work whose ending is already in Christ and will be completed by God. Our work is not to make these things come about, to will the resurrection or bring about the kingdom of God. Those things have been and are being and will be done by God. But our work is, I believe, to take a good long look at what we have received in Christ as a community and then to hold those gifts up against what we know God has done and will be doing and with God's help to discern together how we can use what we've been given to point ourselves in our ministry in the same direction we know God in history to be heading. Which means, I think, that we can do this work seriously and with great intentionality and at the same time be playful and imaginative and hold the work lightly. And so we can brainstorm and dream and laugh as we offer up a range of possibilities and not have to insist that there's only one perfect path forward. That path has already been laid by God. And so we can listen to one another and consider every idea, every wish, every hope and hold each one as sacred and hold each one lightly and hold each one together with all the others. Our work today is not to figure out the one true and perfect way to move ahead. It's to consider all the possibilities, the myriad ways we can be faithful together, the many paths that we can choose to follow, each one running parallel to the one 
already laid by God. Now, yes, we will attempt to come to consensus on deciding which of that myriad way, which, which of that myriad to follow, which of the many possibilities seem best as starting points. But we can enter into even that work of discernment with joy, I think, because we know that there really is no wrong answer so long as we understand ourselves to be engaged in work that was begun at Easter and is ending in salvation. I guess when all is said and done, and I am almost done, I guess what I'm hoping for us today is that we can open ourselves fully to one another, to God's spirit, that we can enter this work with wonder as we remember that we're here today because of Easter and we'll be here in the future for the same reason and that together with Christians throughout history and around the world, we're moving toward that promised end, the promised salvation. We can understand ourselves as not attempting to create the perfect structure so that we can stand still on the last spot we saw Jesus, but that we see ourselves as a pilgrim people, always walking after the one who died and was raised from death in order to create this community and millions just like it, each one walking with God, each one walking with God toward the future God has already established. And what we do today, I believe, is another step along that path. Where we will go next, well, that's what we will begin to discover today. What we will become and what we will do to live faithfully together and how we will shape our ministries is what we will begin to discover today. What we will need along the way and how we will invite others to join us and how we will nurture our children to keep on walking with us is what we will begin to discover today. What we will do to preserve and broaden our community and ensure our life together into the near future and make sure that we're being good stewards of all that we've been given in Christ. Well, that's what we'll begin to discover today. What we will do to make welcome new travelers and support weary travelers and carry travelers whose strength is going is what we will begin to discover today. Today, we are going to imagine ourselves just a few years into the future and so continue the work that God has made for us. Today, we're going to plan for the next steps along in our journey. This is our work. This is our liturgy. God's work was to set us in motion by the power of resurrection. God's work is to guide us on until we reach the end of the path, until we reach our salvation. And so we can do our work in peace, and with confidence, and with all joy. For we know that what God has set out to do will be accomplished. God will make it so. Which frees us, then, to do the worshipful work of visioning. Amen.